This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host Laura Kessler comes up next. Welcome to Talking Point. I'm Laura Kessler. We are living in strange times. On one hand, we have all the choice in the world. On the other hand, if one doesn't choose the right binary choice in certain situations, they can easily lose access to that world and the privileges of culture. What a paradox to have Pandora channels and Netflix cues sculpted to suit every aspect of our whimsical individuality, while the census and offices of diversity, equity, and inclusion reduce core ethnic categories to simplistic binaries that literally exclude the diversity of some ethnicities. How did we become so particular with the frivolous things in life, yet so binary about the issues that really affect our safety and identity? Well, for at least some of us. The classic liberalism of my youth was all about the individuality and celebrating being free to be you and me. How did we move from that hyper-individuality to a homogenization of identity? It's estimated that a third of our kids have mental health issues, and that's just the kids. With a major chunk of the planet suffering from mental health issues after COVID, is it any wonder that a sudden tendency towards herd mentality and groupthink would run us off the rails? Should we really be thinking as a collective right now? The history of groupthink is actually pretty interesting, especially when you throw some mass psychoses into the mix but these are controversial subjects that people get punished for discussing out loud. For most of us, it's easier to keep our mouths shut, just like the bystanders who let Kitty Genovese die. People don't want to get involved, especially if they're young and can't afford to risk their careers or livelihood in a toxic groupthink environment. But a few brave people are not afraid to speak out, and my guest today is one of them. Andrew Pesson is Campus Bureau Editor of the Algeminer and Professor of Philosophy at Connecticut College. In addition to his academic work and mainstream books like The 60-Second Philosopher, he's authored three novels, including most recently Nevergreen, a satirical account of cancel culture on campus and its ideological excess and impact on the Jews. Andrew is also a well-respected curator of anti-Semitism research and resources for the Jewish community across multiple platforms. His book, Anti-Zionism on Campus, The University, Free Speech, and BDS, was published in 2018 by Indiana University Press. And his book, Poisoning the Wells, Anti-Semitism in Contemporary America, was published by ISGAP in 2021. Andrew speaks regularly on a variety of topics concerning Jewish life and anti-Zionism, and we're honored to have him with us today. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. Andrew, tell us a little about your upbringing and how your own Jewish identity was formed, and why philosophy? Well, that's that's a lot of questions packed into one there, but um, I grew up uh, in a pretty standard 1970s uh, reform Jewish environment, which was a very, in my experience anyway, a very thin Jewish identity. And of all the kids I grew up with in sort of my cohort who were bar mitzvah, b'nai mitzvah around the same time, um, I don't think a single one continued in their Jewishness in any serious way. 
most of my friends from growing up intermarried, you know, and that's that's fine as an individual choice. But it was not it was not at least in my situation, a deep, a deep identity. And in fact, I largely left it behind for a good number of years. Um, I don't think I renounced it, but it certainly was not a, a factor in my experience. And in college and beyond, I was very interested in Eastern religions and Eastern philosophy. And I had a period where I was sort of seriously pursuing Buddhism, Zen Buddhism in particular. And um, and I could have easily gone that route. Uh, you know, I'm not quite sure why I didn't. Life is filled with sort of unresolved changes of paths, un unclear changes of paths. But um, uh, a few years after college, I just I got really deeply into the question of religions in general and uh, did, was thinking of going to graduate school in comparative religion. Actually, that was a serious cho uh, possibility for a bit. And in that phase, I started realizing I'm interested in all these religions. Well, you know, I never really got to know Judaism well in my own personal upbringing of it. And so that was the, the period I sort of began looking back at Judaism. And I think I, I always wanted to be religious. I wasn't sure which religion would be the best one. And in that period, I realized, well, why not give the one I was born into at least um, a fair shake? And so I started really in graduate school at this point, sort of mid-late 20s, getting more interested in understanding Judaism. Um, I even went on, there was a, a program that Chabad used to run, a summer program in the Catskill Mountains for, I think, college students and graduate students who just wanted to learn more about observant Judaism. It was like, a, I think, a four or five week thing, and they paid you. So it was a nice way to you know, make a little money, very little, but something over the summer and learn about it. And that that was that really planted a deep seed. I, I saw in their case how meaningful and beautiful an observant life, an observant Jewish life can be. Um, and so from that point onwards, I think my Jewish identity was really very, very strong. And I, I sort of moved in and out of observance to different degrees, but with great respect for the observant life, even when I'm not being particularly observant. So that's sort of my, my Jewish story. That's um, a great success story for Chabad. Um, it is. I mean, I had my, I, you know, the way I used to put it was if I didn't have my independent interest, I don't think the Chabad thing would have maybe, you know, worked the magic, but I had an independent interest and it was a seed and they really watered it. Um, and I have great respect for the Chabad movement for all sorts of reasons to this day That's as great. a result of that. Yeah. As far as philosophy, I think I just always was a philosopher, even if I didn't have that label for it when I was a kid. Um, looking back, the things that interested me were always sort of philosophical things. And, I, and I, I knew probably the first philosophy book, I'm making scare quotes about that, um, I read was a um, very famous book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance back in the late <laughs> 70s. I read that. And I think from that moment, on, I don't even remember it well. I should probably reread it now that I've become a philosopher. But um, it, uh, from that moment onwards, I knew philosophy would be one of the things I pursued for sure. And, and it was in college and, and beyond. So there wasn't a, um, a sudden moment when I realized philosophy was it. I think I always was leaning that way. And then when I discovered it, it just, you know, it was speaking to the choir, so to speak. I have heard this book mentioned so many times, and I'm going to have to read it at some point because Zen and the Art of Motorcycles and um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Maintenance, right. Maintenance, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I, you know, I read it, I, um, is it 40 years now? <laughs> yeah, more than 40 years ago. And I still remember sort of interesting pieces of it. So it really, it really made an impression. Interesting, interesting. So how many books have you written? And I know some of them are for ordinary people too, that are not academic. So do you think there's a philosopher in all of us? 
Um, let me mention, I do think academics are ordinary people for better or for worse as well. <laughs> I wouldn't say they're, they're, they are idiosyncratic and weird people in some ways, but they're also ordinary people. I tend to people. elevate you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I tend to de-elevate academics because when you look at what's going on in the academy, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that a little bit later, um, the absolute insanity and craziness and bigotry and hatred that comes out from people with PhDs is just stunning. Yeah. So, um, so I appreciate the elevation, but um, academics are ordinary people. That said, um, yeah, a number of my books are for the the non-academic reader. Um, I, I don't. I have somewhere 12, 13, 14, something like that. They're all on my website, andrewpesson.com. So anyone interested, please feel free to check that out. Um, and in recent years, I've been well. I've been focusing a little bit more on the the books for the general reader. Um, they're they're fun to write, and they seem to connect with a lot of people. Um, I've been very pleased with the reception they have received. So um, yeah, I do think- for it. There's a really no, need for I've... people like you with your knowledge to bring it down a notch exactly like that for the norm, you know, I won't say normal people because you guys- No, no normal people. is good. I like normal. Academic versus normal. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, you know, I have, one, I have a book called The 60-Second Philosopher. Um, and indeed, I think everybody is a philosopher. We all start off as philosophers as small children. You're, the, the questions small kids ask are philosophical questions. And the world is filled with wonder. As uh, Plato, I believe it was, who said, the first great ancient Greek philosopher said, you know, philosophy begins in wonder. Might have been Aristotle, actually, who said that. One of them said that. Begins in wonder. And small children are just filled with wonder. And one of the real, I don't know, terrible things, um, lamentable things is that most of us, as we grow out of small childhood, we lose that sense of wonder. Um, and yeah. some people never get it back. And if there's one thing philosophy is good for, there's some things that's, it can be dangerous in some ways, but the, what it's good for is it, it teaches you very quickly that the things you think you understand, you don't actually really understand, and that the world is more complicated than you think it is, but it's also more interesting than you think it is. And uh, it really can return that sense of wonder to people. And so even just as an aesthetic experience, to, to experience wonder is just a beautiful yeah. thing. It can really enrich your life in all sorts of ways. And so philosophy can really help that. And um so this book, 60, The 60-Second Philosopher, it's a bunch of very short chapters. I think they're no more than 350 words. You literally can read most of them in you know one to two minutes. And each one is just trying to present some interesting thought, question, argument, idea to get you thinking and to begin to appreciate that the world is really wonderful in the most literal sense, full of wonder. Yeah, that's so, such an important thing you mentioned about the the wonder and the curiosity. Yeah. And you know, in my field too with creativity, you know, creativity begins with boredom. Technically, you know, you're you're wondering, you're curious, right. and you you can't really get to the highest levels of creativity without having that. And it's really sad how many people in academia just have become so insular. They it's like they're not curious and they're supposed to be the most curious yeah, people that's true wonder. So, let me add, let me add one more little plug for philosophy there so you know wonder is the thing you probably have not heard about when people talk about philosophy the thing you're more likely to hear is philosophy is good for your critical thinking skills or to learn how to think clearly methodically rigorously etc and it really is good for those things and that's good 
for everybody to just sharpen your ability to think whatever it is you care about, whatever it is you're working on, even as a creative person, to be able to think sort of clearly and methodically and rigorously as you're creating whatever, you know, work of art or whatever you might be creating. It's an incredibly valuable skill. So I, I do urge exactly. all people to um, to nurture the philosopher within. Amen to that. Well, before we get into the, the deeper questions, I would totally be letting a whole lot of people down if I didn't ask you how you met David Letterman and became known as the genius on his late night show in the 90s. Um, you know, talk about one's 15 minutes of fame. So the, that used up about seven of my 15 minutes um, year, years ago. I think there's um, a link to one of the clips on my website, andrewpesson.com, for those who want to check it out. But um, it, it's a long story. The short version is I knew someone who was interning at the at Letterman show and they wanted to produce um, an amusing little clip uh, about three superheroes, the strong guy, the fat guy and the genius. And our, they were put on earth to break things, eat things and solve them. That was the the, the shit. You definitely got the best role there. Well, <laughs> yeah. So I, I was, it was literally the day before I was defending my PhD dissertation. I got this call oh my from God. my friend who said, well, they're auditioning people for the genius. Do you want to come down and audition? So I had to decide between <laughs> auditioning for this, you know, little fun <laughs> thing on David Letterman. I was a big fan of him back in those days. Uh, this was in the 90s. Yeah. Um, or prepare for my PhD dissertation defense, <laughs> which I clearly made the right decision. I went down and auditioned. And I. it was just, again, one of those fortuitous things. They had th three guys come into audition for the genius. And um, one of them was like really built and he he looked too much like the strong guy. So I think he was just ruled <laughs> out. And the other one was just like super ultra, if I may say so, nerdy. He was just like so <laughs> uber nerdy. I think he was too nerdy for them. And I was like the right balance of pretty weak and just a little bit nerdy. <laughs> I like to think. <laughs> so, I, so I think I got the job by default. And, uh, you know, and so we made a few little clips and um, and the rest is history. So uh, oh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. As I like to say, I'm not an actual genius. I just played one on TV. So <laughs> but that's Love literally that. true. Right. And your dissertation obviously went well, too. <laughs> I passed. That's all that matters. <laughs> Good. Good. That That is. Yeah, I saw the the 15 minute highlight reel. It was it was really fun. Um, well, how did you become an activist? And just take us through the journey that went from David Letterman and grad school to becoming this anti-Semitism educator and grassroots advocate. Okay, that's a big question, too. So um, I think, uh, well, let me say one thing that, um, up front, which is I'm, a, I'm actually a deeply conflict-averse person. I just, I, it's not for me, conflict. Um, I prefer to work behind the scenes. I'm not the one that's going to be on the front line so much. It's just not my thing. And I, I feel, I'm filled with awe and praise for people who are not necessarily conflict seekers. That's not so good. But people who are not afraid of conflict and, um, and stand up. Uh, the, I mean, I think the real people who, the real heroes on this big battle that Jews are waging now on campuses are the people who are on the front lines, most, mostly the students, the students who stand up and speak out and are not afraid to get into arguments and debates with the many haters on campus who are directing hatred their way. Those are the, those are really the, the true heroes, but that's, that's not my role. Um, that's not, I don't think personally suited for it. So I, um, uh, as I mentioned, my Jewish identity became very, very strong and in my view, it is not possible to understand Jewish identity without understanding a very, without uh, even having a deep 
uh, connection to the land of Israel, the biblical land of Israel. If you study Jewish texts, I don't have to you know, go into detail here. Uh, the history of the Jewish religion and the Jewish identity, it is it is God, the Jews, and the land. Those are the big three, and the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, right? Those things, that is, that is Judaism. So uh, I had always a very strong connection to the land of Israel um, and the state of Israel. And, um, and did my advocacy, certainly as we get into recent years in social media, um, my, the advocacy, I could see that the things have been unpleasant for Zionists on campus for actually a long time. They, they started to get really bad in the early 2000s and then have only gotten worse since then. But, but there's been lot, always been hostility towards Israel and a lot of different campuses going back many decades. Um, so I did my advocacy very quietly, just, you know, posting things on social media, um, which is not unimportant, but it's not that loud and in your face either. The only people that see it are your followers, you know, so uh, a little bit preaching to the choir, which is a, a problem. But you have a lot of them, though. <laughs> uh, not compared to others, but not 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 a small amount, but not huge. Um, but in any case, that was my advocacy. And um, I, without getting into details, um, I was watching things happen, get uglier and uglier on campuses in the early 2010s. And you, um, you know, it's hard to distinguish them, the various conflicts between Israel and Hamas since Hamas took power. But in 2014 was, uh, I believe, the other one. And I was um, live blogging that one as many people were. And, um, you know, what happens and it gets worse with each conflict is when Israel defends itself against Hamas, the whole rest of the world turns on Israel and their local Jews, whoever those might be. So we saw that particularly viciously in May of 2021, when Jews were literally being assaulted in the streets of major North American cities and European cities uh, because Israel was defending itself. Right. So it's it's been building and building, building to the point now where literally Jews get beaten up when Israel defends itself. Could already see that in 2014 when I was sort of live blogging that conflict. And without getting into details, um, uh, I myself became the target of a cancel campaign that was just incredibly dishonest and ugly. And what became clear to me then, I I'm sure I understood it philosophically, intellectually prior to that, but now I understood it viscerally uh, in my gut, literally, um, but came clear to me then in one sentence is that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, to put it just too simply, that, that this hostility to Israel on campuses in general just is Jew hatred being released in a superficially acceptable way, morally acceptable way. We're for human rights. We're for justice. We're for the oppressed people, the Palestinians, et cetera, et cetera. So of course, those are good things. But in fact, it was Jew hatred coming out in those forms. So uh, with my my own experience of being canceled, my eyes were so opened as a result of that. It was indisputable to me and has been since that point forward that this hostility to Israel just is Jew hatred. And um, I, as a conflict-averse person, this was a very stressful experience for me, as you could imagine. Um, and I was, uh, you know, moments away from complete nervous breakdown. And I, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. When somebody started um, a change.org petition on my behalf, and that petition managed to go viral, and it went around the world a few times, and it got something like 10,000 signatures. And what I, and the reason I'm telling this is there's an important moral here. As I got those, as I got that support from Jews around the world, and also non-Jews, but mostly Jews around the world, 
um, I realized that um, we have a serious battle here and I was not alone. I was maybe being targeted at that moment, but that I had a whole army of 10,000 people behind me and that hearing from those people rescued me from the precipice of a really a literal nervous breakdown. And I realized I have to stand up and fight for those people right there behind me. Um, and it, it was that moment that I realized I needed to sort of change the focus of what I was doing. And, you know, I was a philosopher. I was working on Descartes and Cartesianism primarily. Um, and from that moment forward, Jews and Israel have been sort of a major part of my work because I realized there is a, there's a battle here that um, has been brought to us. We didn't ask for this. It's been brought to us and the choices. And I, I think it's really, really stark. Um, as you know, in the medieval period, in various places in Europe, such as uh, the expulsion from Spain, Jews were given the choice to convert, leave, or die. Those are your three choices, right? Convert, leave, or die. And um, many converted, something like a third of the Jewish population of Spain in the 15th century uh, converted over the course of that century. Um, many left and many died, right? Um, and that's the choice that's being put to Jewish students on campus today. Um, certainly convert or leave, become an active anti-Zionist or we're canceling you on campuses. And things are starting to get physically violent too. So we're not quite up to the, you know, the death option, but um, that's happening. There's been physical assaults on various campuses now. And certainly every time Israel defends itself, there's a serious threat of that the next time around. So I think Jews today in North America, in the United States, in Europe, are in the same situation that the Jews in 15th century Spain were, convert, leave or die basically. And um, I think none of those are good options, right? Uh, you know, um, none of those are good options. And so the, the battle has been joined. It, it, it ha it's, we'd have no choice, even if even a conflict averse person like me realizes one has to, one has to participate in this battle. So that's the period, that's the moment from that I really became an activist, I suppose, or an educator, because you know, my particular skills are in education. So that's the, the primary form of my activism. The moral of my story, though, I want to make this clear is, uh, is two things. One, if you care about the Jews in Israel and how they're faring on campus, point number one is it's essential to be informed about what's going on. You have to know what's going on on all the different campuses. So let me put in, a, there's a lot of news sources out there. I work for the Algeminer, which is a wonderful news outlet for matters Jewish mm -hmm. in Israel sign up for the daily email. We have a campus bureau, so we follow the campus closely and you'll certainly be informed as to what's going on on campuses and elsewhere. And then number two, um, reaching out to the people who are on the front lines, the, the faculty members and the, primarily the students who are on these campuses facing the brunt of the demand that they convert, leave or die basically, right? This is what they're, they're experiencing at college. Um, uh, and reach out to them. You can typically find email addresses or find them on social media. If someone's being attacked, that, e e that email of support can make all the difference in the world. If a professor is being canceled for his or her Zionism, that email of support can make all the difference in the world. And when they do a good thing, so for, you know, most recently, if you've been following the Harvard Kennedy School business with Ken yes. Roth, you know, uh, that, that's a loss for our side. Um, uh, but um, there's a, a wonderful student at Harvard, well, one of the Harvard Crimson editors wrote an editorial just before the reversal happened, defending the Harvard Dean for making the decision not to hire Ken Roth. I'm assuming the audience knows the story. Um, so I just emailed her, say, great article. Thank you for speaking up. Little things like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I know in my case, hearing from people off my campus, those words of support, 
converted me from collapsing in defeat to standing up and fighting. And so you don't know the difference it can make. So be informed and then actively reach out to the people who are in, on the front lines, whether they've done being defeated, they're being attacked, or when, when they do something brave, like stand up and speak out. Yes. But it's clear to me now that, um, that as I said, the, the battle is underway. It's been brought to us. And so our choices are convert, leave, or die. And none of those is acceptable. And so we have to fight. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. And I know that a lot of people are, well, it's, it's sad to hear everything you went through. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And it's very courageous that you're sharing that you're doing exactly the best thing you could do to right. turn it around and turn Thank it you. into a positive and it's, it's you're the perfect person to do it too right. so you know since then i've started teaching courses about jewish philosophy and zionism you know in, introducing that into the curriculum and you mentioned a couple of my books i have the um, 2018 the book anti-zionism on campus that was sort of the direct product of this and its goal was simply to document uh, it's a it's an anthology collecting testimonies from faculty members and also students about how they've been targeted on campuses. And its goal was to in, information document just how serious this problem is, because, I you know, unless you're following it closely, almost none of these stories, by the way, none of these campus stories almost none of them make it to the mainstream news. The Harvard Kennedy School one just did, but but that's the exception. Um, you know, every morning for the Algemeiner, typically I'm pitching 15 to 20 stories of which one or two get covered, right? Um, and so if you're reading the Algeminer, you're only getting the tip of the of the iceberg because that's just the resources right. that we have. And of the 15 stories I'm pitching, those are the ones I've happened to find out about, but how many do I not hear about? It's not like I'm omniscient or omnipresent, right? So the point is um, that first book, 2018, Anti-Zionism on Campus, was just documenting the problem to bring attention to it, which is the first step towards being motivated to do something. And then, as you mentioned, in uh, 2021, with my wonderful colleague, Corinne Blackmer, um, we assembled an anthology basically about anti-Semitism in the United States, which has, is, uh, you know, this was, uh, it couldn't be more timely because as that book came out, I mean, it's been bad for a number of years, but, you know, the last year alone, it's just magnified exponentially. So um, calling attention to it, documenting it is the first step towards doing something about it. And so, yeah, that's that's what I've chosen to do since I had my own particular epiphany. You're doing it very well, too. Thank you. Um, let's talk about your most recent book, Nevergreen. Okay. Um, what is Happily. it about? What is it about? I think I know why you wrote it, okay. um, but but tell people what it's about and also why you never once mentioned that the main character is Jewish. So, okay. So um, I, I always wanted to write fiction. I always wanted to be a novelist. That's been a dream. Um, and uh, along the way, this I've managed to publish three novels. I've just recently finished writing a fourth. I don't know what will happen with it yet, but um, so Nevergreen is a novel. Uh, it came out last year, um, 20, end of 2021, I think. Um, and uh, it's the story, as you you gave the brief description, it is a satirical account of campus cancel culture, the craziness that's, that's you know, working its way through campuses in general. I think that's a general phenomenon, but it's uh, a particular phenomenon as, of course, the uh, antagonism towards the Jews. Um, and so uh, campuses are really on fire right now in a bad way, in my in my opinion. Um, they are not what they either used to be, or at least 
used to aspire to be. They don't even aspire to be what they used to aspire to be to, <laughs> namely places where you have diversity of opinion and people um, people disagree in a healthy, respectful, rational manner. And the goal is to reach the truth with the thought being an, an idea that goes back to classical liberalism, John Stuart Mill, like freedom of thought, freedom of speech stuff, 19th century. The idea is um, that the best way to reach the truth is to have people come to some sort of neutral territory and with their diverse arguments and their diverse evidence and argue it out. And eventually the truth comes to light. That That is either the old model or the old aspiration. Um, but today that's not what campuses are about. Um, and it's so first and foremost, the novel is a satire on sort of the campus craziness in general, in particular campus cancel culture. I'll, I'll assume your listeners are familiar with the phenomenon. People no longer just disagree. If someone, if, if someone disagrees with you, they're seen as harmful in some way or racist or, or white supremacist mm -hmm. or something like that. Disagreement is itself a form of harm and therefore cannot be tolerated. And the person who is bold enough to dissent from the overarching opinions, it can't merely be disagreed with, but has to be literally eliminated from the campus. Their voice right. has to be eliminated. They have to be silenced. Their class is canceled. They have to be fired if they're faculty members. Uh, it takes different forms for stu students. Get you, presented it, you presented it so funny, you know, even though it's very serious. It, so, it's so, so it, it is. Thank you. It is serious, but the you know the goal of the book is to mock it. So you know it's a satire, and it's meant Definitely to be pulled that funny. <laughs> yeah, no, um, you know there there's the idea. It goes back to uh, a guy named Saul Alinsky wrote a book or pamphlet mm -hmm. called Rules for Radicals, um, yeah. and I think it was rule number four, possibly. But one of the rules is you know ridicule and mockery, if effective, can't be answered. Like any critique, like a rational critique, you can always give you know a counter argument or something like that, but effective mockery, it can't be answered. Once something has been made to look ridiculous, you can't recover from it, right? So if you, so at least that's what I'm aiming for is to take this mindset, this campus cancel, campus cancel culture mindset and mock it. Um, uh, and one way you mock it is by, you know, ex exaggerating its excesses which brings out its essence, makes its essence right. sort of writ, writ large. So if you found it funny, then that's a victory because it's supposed to be funny. I, I think um, it needs to you. be a movie. It's like, it, it it reads like a screenplay to me and it's thank, so entertaining you. and um, it, it, it gets uh, the point across without beating people over the head. It's kind of for itself. I'll happily entertain all screenplay or, or you know, movie <laughs> um, uh, petitions if anyone out there is interested and connected. But uh, so that's the general thing. But of course, um, as you hinted at, it's also secretly about the Jews, as I like to put it. It's secretly about the Jews. The word Jew, Jewish, Israel does not arise, you know, occur once in the novel. So it's easy to read it and miss it entirely that it's all about the Jews. It's actually sort of, it's almost coded into it, um, uh, the the rich and deep Jewish angle. And yeah, I wouldn't have known if you hadn't have told me before I read it. Yeah, no, and I've had some people who are very sort of active and, you know, concerned about how Jews are being treated on campuses who didn't realize that it's all about the Jews. So for those who are interested, um, you know, they're very minor spoilers, but I do have on my website um, a document called The Secret Jewish Guide to Nevergreen. Oh. So those who are interested, um, that will give you a bit of a guide to how to sort of decode 
the the that aspect of the book that it's about the Jews. So you can I'll have find to that. check that out for sure. Yes, andrewpesson.com. You can find the doc. It's uh, um it should be on the page for Nevergreen itself. There's a little link that yeah. says for the secret Jewish guide. We can post it uh, on your profile page. <laughs> so oh, sure. Um so one you know one thing to mention is that um so there's the general campus cancel culture. And then there's the particular aspect of the Jews. And I think it's fair to say, sort of in general, that whenever large groups of people get gripped by some all-consuming universalist ideology, as campus activists currently are, it's never good for the Jews. <laughs> never good for mm -hmm. the Jews, whether it was Christianity in the early you know, centuries of the common era or communism, socialism. Um, and now today it's critical race theory, intersectionality, and anti-Zionism. These are these sort of massive ideologies that large groups of people not don't merely accept or agree with, but treat almost as a religion that can't be questioned or disputed. You have to be canceled if you question or dispute any aspect of these ideologies. Well, it's never good for the Jews. It's just never good for the Jews. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, sort of, the the the, in, the ideas or the intellectual the ideology that's itself sort of underneath Nevergreen um, is um, is making is exploiting the fact that these campus ideologies and I just mentioned critical race theory intersectionality and anti-Zionism all three of them pretend they're not about the Jews right? they they claim they're not about the Jews and on the surface are not about the Jews but when you start digging a little more deeply into all three of them, you quickly discover they are very inhospitable to the Jews. They are not friendly to the Jews. Um, and you know, I could elaborate on that a little bit more. And so I wanted to mirror that in the book, which is on the surface, it's not about the Jews, but when you start probing and get a little bit more deeply into it, you realize it is all about the Jews. It is all about the Jews. And indeed, I think it's fair to say that, um, that the, the Jews are the, the first and immediate targets of campus cancel culture, both chronologically and, and even logically or in significance. What I mean by that is you know, the, the, the least modern form of the BDS movement, Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, which I'll assume your audience is familiar with, um, that really gets going in the early 2000s. And BDS is nothing if not a cancel campaign against first against Israel. For in its early years, the goal was and continues to be to cancel Israel and the presence of Israel, you know, anything pro-Israel, certainly on campus. In recent years, it's more explicitly openly targeting not Israel, because I think the BDS movement has realized, certainly the campus BDS movement has realized it can't harm Israel. Israel's, you know, it's a military power. It's an economic power. Israel's GDP has only just gone up and up and up over the last two decades mm -hmm. since BDS began. So BDS if the goal is to directly harm Israel has been a massive failure by any objective measure. Um, so it's, what it's done in recent years is it's turned its attention not to Israel, but to supporters of Israel on their local campuses. So now BDS literally directly targets all Zionists on campus, students and faculty member in all sorts of ways. Um, it's become very personal and hostile to the point now that Jewish students are filing lawsuits left and right because they're being harassed and bullied and ostracized on their campuses for supporting Israel. So BDS now went from targeting Israel for cancellation to targeting Zionists for cancellation. And the overwhelming 
majority of those Zionists are Jews. So basically BDS was really the first major campus cancel campaign um, and it's against the Jews. And to this day, it's broadened its scope. So, you know, other people get canceled now as well, but uh, without question, the largest single group identifiable group of people who are the targets of campus cancel campaigns are the Jews. Are the That's Jews. interesting how you, how you're saying that it really started there because I mean, would you say that all of critical race theory came from that angle too, or just BDS? Um, no, so um, I, I'm certainly not a, a scholar of critical race theory and intersectionality. And my understanding of those overall sets of doctrines that fall under those labels is there's many, many good things about them. And I don't think they initially at all came from a place of targeting the Jews. Um, there's no questions. There's serious problems with, there's a, remains a serious problem of racism in the country and discrepancies and all those things. And they're absolutely worth looking at. And so these ideologies came from a good place and have value. I don't want to say they're worthless. They have, they have value. But what happens is as they begin to get implemented, and I'll just give a quick example like from critical race theory. Um, you know, critical race theory, as you begin, at least as it gets implemented, maybe this is not how it's present in the original theorists of the movement, but as it trickles down and becomes, you know, part of the atmosphere in many, many campuses, um, it seems to include this idea of um, basically racial essentialism. It's like very simplistic. Um, all members of a race are basically to be treated the same. Basically, all white people are oppressors. All people of color are oppressed. There's no room for diversity of opinion within those groups. There's no room for differences. Maybe not all people of color are oppressed. Maybe some people of color are oppressors. And maybe some white people are oppressed, right? There's no room for that. It's very, very black and white. Um, and once they start doing that, it's it's literally a matter of three seconds before they're concluding, well, Jews are white, which is a major tenet of this program. Jews are white. That's how they, and there's a lot that's problematic with that claim alone from that, a scholarly that's program. That's news for Hitler, right? That's news for the white supremacists who deny that Jews are white, right? right? Jews, not only Jews are white, but because Jews on average are more successful than other subgroups, Jews become um, hyper-white, literally that expression you use. Jews are like ultra white. And since white means oppressor, you start off with an ideology that might be very valuable and have really important things to offer and, and necessary to battle the problems of racism and discrimination in our country. And within minutes, the way it's manifest on campus is who is targeted as the worst oppressor of them all. It's a, American Jews are seen as the worst oppressor of right, them all. Right. At the same At time as American Jews are the primary targets of, you know, um, of hate crimes, you know, by all those statistics, we're disproportionately represented as the victims of hate crimes, but we're at the same time on campuses in this ideology, we are the worst oppressors. And once you have this mindset, and literally it's like, it takes three seconds to get from the basic ideas to the conclusion that Jews are the problem, right? That's right. really how it works. No matter when, who's, who's who's throwing it around, it, the conclusion is always that it's the Jews. We're Jews are the, the problem, right? Jews the are the, never, of the blame. Right. Yeah. And I don't need to begin refuting it to this audience, but right. There's like, mm -hmm. it's, it's not just false, but egregiously false, ridiculously, stupidly, absurdly false. Right. Well, and absurd for the 15% of, of black Jews who, you know, that just has to just completely, right. It's complete pretzel logic for them. Right. You know, the right. double whammy. And so with this ideology in place, you then combine it with, you know, they look at the Middle East, they look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict 
and they can only see it through the lens of these concepts. So all they see are white Jews oppressing people of color, the Palestinians, and that's it. So this incredibly complex conflict, and I can spend a long time talking about how complex this conflict is, is simplified to white supremacy, et cetera. And that's easy. We're all against white supremacists, you know, all decent people anyway, right? We're all against white supremacists. So Israelis, i.e. Jews, are white supremacists and American Jews are ultra white. We're also white supremacists. And that's the dominant ideology on most major campuses today, right? That's the dominant ideology. And it's where, so wherever it came from, maybe someplace valuable, good stuff, important stuff, you know, necessary stuff, within a few steps, it's just Jew hatred. It's just yeah. Jew hatred. And that's what Jewish students and Jewish faculty members, and God forbid you're a Jewish student, a Jewish student or faculty member who also is a Zionist or also is supportive right. of Israel, or actually, you don't I want to talk about that. Yeah. The bar doesn't, be, you don't have to be even supportive. You just have to not hate Israel. If you're just not a hater, then you're clearly complicit in the white supremacy, which is suppressing people of color in the United States and suppressing the poor Palestinians over there who are nothing but victims of the white supremacy. It's this horrific thing. So it's not a surprise. You know, Jewish students um, are afraid to stand up for Israel on their campus, some of them, because to stand up for Israel, it's like saying, hey, I'm a white supremacist. I'm a neo-Nazi, right? How's that going to go over? Right. See, so, and I think a lot of people who are not in academia or haven't been at university for many years or decades, a lot of them maybe don't believe it's quite that bad. And it really, really is. It and, is that bad. It is that bad. Bring up, yeah, I, I used to call it the 800 pound gorilla in the room, but I think everybody's talking about the gorilla is the fact that there are Jews participating in a lot of yeah. this anti-Zionism. Right. And you're also a member of the Jewish Studies Zionist Network, which is the yes. primary organization fighting back. It's academics who are standing up against the academics who are basically throwing Israel under the bus. So I, I, I just have to ask you, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you, but what do you make of Jewish anti-Zionism anti and the record number of the American Jews and especially academics that are enabling them. And, and, you know, from maybe from a philosophical perspective, right. how do you explain this phenomenon when a large group of people basically self-abandons themselves? And, you know, it, it's like they're prioritizing taking care of the needs of everybody else, like a good Jewish mother, you know, not sitting down to eat um, instead of putting their own oxygen mask on first. And it's, it's just... What, what do you call that? And I'll give you an extra long question here. What, what are our maybe our moral obligations with regarding to fighting anti-Semitism, but also balancing it with tikkun olam, uh, which is some people are growing to hate that word tikkun olam. Other people, that's their, that is their Judaism. So whatever you want to throw at that 60 second philosopher. Oh, gee, that's impossible. <laughs> you can have more than 60 seconds, of course. You, you just asked like three PhD dissertations worth of questions all wrapped into one and, and gave me 60 seconds. Um, yeah. So the phenomenon, you, you <laughs> this phenomenon, um, Edward Alexander, who just, just passed away a couple of years ago, was a wonderfully articulate, um, I think he was a literature professor, but a Zionist. Um, he wrote a wonderful book called Jews Against Themselves, where he was, you know, documenting prominent Jewish academics who become arch anti-Zionists. And I, I commend that book. He's he's got a way with words. Um, professor Alexander did a really wonderful book. Um, and certainly um, the Jewish students 
who uh, join SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, is the main campus organization, has you know a couple of hundred chapters on different campuses. And they have Jewish students amongst them. Sometimes Jewish students lead them. There's another group called Jewish Voice for Peace, which has some presence on campus too. And these are just, you know. Those are the schools with those chapters are the ones that are having all the worst anti-Semitism. Uh, oh, without question. Like Amcha Initiative, which is a wonderful group that documents yes. uh, campus anti-Semitism. You know, they've done studies showing you absolutely get the worst uh, incidents occurring on campuses where there are SJPs and JVPs. These are JVP should be Jewish Voice for Palestine, not Jewish Voice for Peace, but nevertheless, absolutely arch anti-Zionist. Um, uh, so, as far as I understand, though, um, the number of let's say Jews who are anti-Zionists is still a relatively small percentage of the Jewish population, but um, they're loud, arguably though. growing and very loud, right? And so. Um, different studies tend to suggest anywhere from 85 to 95 percent of Jews are pro-Israel or supportive of Israel or look with Israel. It depends how the poll questions but are But they're not loud, you know. They're, tend they're, not to be loud. No, they? they tend not to be loud. No, absolutely. But so it is still a, a fringe fringe group. Um, there's a, a saying from the Talmud. I have to look up the exact thing, but it says something like, um, you know, at the end of days, like our, our harbinger, a sign that we're reaching the end of days is that the enemy is within our own household or something like that, right? Like, oh uh, which is a quote I like because not that I think we're coming to the end of days yet, <laughs> but it's when your own side starts turning against you, something has, has gone terribly, terribly wrong. Now, it's a very complex phenomenon. So let me just say one or two things about it. Any, uh, you know, any individual is going to make up their mind about where they stand on all issues in the world. It's not for me to tell someone else what to think, right? I, well, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true. My goal is to try to persuade you to think the things I think are the correct things. But, um, but you know, each individual makes up his or her own mind as to where where they stand, and, and every individual have their own story. But um, I think a couple of things are in play. Uh, one, these these Jews who are vocal on anti-Zionist Jews are often used to, uh, I'll use the expression, to Jewwash the anti-Semitism of the anti-Israel movement. So the anti-Zionist groups, Students for Justice in Palestine, which is a grossly anti-Semitic group through and through, in my opinion, right? They can say, we're not anti-Semitic because look, we have some Jews amongst us and they agree with us. So if Jews agree with the position, it can't be anti-Semitic. That of course is a total logical fallacy. I've written actually a long, a long article, a long essay on why Jew washing fails. The fact that some Jews agree with you doesn't make you not an anti-Semite, basically. Well, and they should understand it because they're very quick to call out tokenization of other groups. If exactly. There's a black conservative or a gay conservative or, you know, exactly. things like that. Right. So first and foremost, it's important to recognize that the presence of Jewish anti-Zionists does not take away the anti-Semitism of the anti-Zionists. So that's point right. number one. Point number two is... Uh, there is so much pressure, social pressure. If you think about college, I mean, you know, young adults, 18, 19 years old, your social life is rightly so very important to you. It's an important part of the college experience. It's the important part of becoming an adult, the friendships and relationships that you form in college. And when you have the situation as it is today, where there's this just incredibly anti-Israel hostile ad atmosphere, the social pressure is enormous to at the very least say nothing. If you happen to be a Zionist, 
it's social suicide in many places to pronounce that fact. So uh, my book, Anti-Zionism on Campus, we have one story from a, a young woman at Oberlin who, you know, she said um, she absolute Zionist, um, but um, she wanted to join the Black Lives Matter group on campus. She was very concerned about racism, et cetera. But you might remember Black Lives Matter. They actually have a whole anti-Israel plank because somehow that's part of their political platform, right? It's nothing to do with racism in America, but Black Lives Matter is officially anti-Israel. And so she couldn't join this group because this group negates her, right? Um, right and so right. It, there's endless stories of Jewish students who hide their identity. So they, you know, that whether it's a, they wear a Star of David, they stop wearing it um, or whatever. They don't tell people that they're Jewish. They don't mention it. They don't speak up. So the one of the reasons we're quiet, the Zionist tend to be quiet, is the social pressure is enormous and everyone wants to put their head down. And as a conflict-averse person, I understand that. I, I, can, I can understand that. But then at the same token, it's well-documented. I can't, now I can't remember the name of it, the effect, but um, people tend to take on the beliefs of the people they hang out with, right? We tend to imitate mm -hmm. it. We're very social animals, human beings, and beliefs are contagious. So when you're around a lot of people who believe something, it becomes a lot easier for you to believe that. And if you want to be friends with these people, or this is like your social circle, you find yourself believing the things that they believe. Well, it's and group thinking. Group I think, think that's I think a good word for it, right? Borderlines on group psychosis, but um, yeah, no, there's like a psychological. I don't know if group group think is a, is that like the or, an Orwell term, but that's that captures it. But there's like literally a, it's a psychological phenomenon that's been documented, and so I think he did double think. And he did double think. True. I don't want to say I'm not sure, but he did know, double we, think is his. So the point is, when when the social pressure is enormous, so, some many Jews will just put their heads down and hide their identity and not speak up, but it becomes that much easier to just join the other side because you join the other side, suddenly you're popular. And because you're a Jew, they really love you, right? Because you're showing they're not anti-Semites. So suddenly you're going to be mm -hmm. the most popular kid on campus, you know? And so that, that pressure I'm sh I, I would imagine is part of the explanation for at least some of the Jewish anti-Zionists, right? And I think the deepest root cause probably not a social scientist, but I'm speculating here, right? Um, I mentioned my own very thin Jewish identity in my upbringing. The, the reform Jewish identity that I grew up in was so superficial. I, in fact, a brief anecdote, the first draft of my bar mitzvah speech, I began my bar mitzvah speech. And the first line was, now that I've completed my Jewish education, I wrote, and the rabbi <laughs> crossed it out and said, no, no, now that I've just begun my Jewish education, right? <laughs> and I, the way I tell the story is, so on my bar mitzvah, I read his line, but my line was the truth because me and everyone else up on that stage, the bar mitzvah was the last day of our Jewish education, right? I happened to come back to it like 15 years later or something like that, yeah. but most don't. And so, and this is not an indictment of reform Judaism in general, but at least my experience of it, mm -hmm. the identity was skin deep and it didn't stick. And without a Jewish identity, then you don't have sort of the first thing, your first line of defense, right? Exactly. The Jewish identity commits you to this place. And once committed to this place, you're going to maybe fight back against it. And if you don't have that, then why should you stick your neck out for Israel? Well, this is it means exactly, nothing to you, right? So yeah, I, I think I think that's the bigger, deeper problem that we're, we've raised a whole generation. I'm going to tell maybe a tasteless joke now, but um, I just heard this <laughs> joke the other day. But what's the difference between um, what's the difference between Trump and an American liberal Jew? Trump has Jewish grandchildren. 
right? Oh, sad. Oh, heartbreaking, right? But you know, yeah. I think is there an element of truth there? I think there might be, which is that surveys are showing American Jews are assimilating. Set what is it, seventy percent intermarriage? And again, I've no nothing against any particular intermarriage. People should fall in love with who they fall in love with, but as a collective phenomenon intermarriage consequences yeah there's consequences two generations from now and you know the or, the orthodox are staying strong in america so the orthodox used to be something like three percent of american jews i think they're now closer to eight or nine or ten percent a couple more generations you know many of the assimilated jews will disappear and the majority are going to be orthodox jews which yeah. is is what it is right so i think that's the biggest deepest problem and that's a big that's a long game problem if we're going to solve the campus problem we need to raise a generation of American Jews who are committed to their Amer Jewish identity um, in a really, really deep, thick way. This um, is exactly what Nihilect and I were talking about last month in one of the episodes, um, the miseducation of K to 12 Jewish education. And it's like that Jewish education piece is everything. But, you know, at least a lot of adults are kind of circling back in. I know I have, I, I thought I learned a lot and I did, but I, I didn't learn enough about Israel. The last five years have really been a yeah. powerhouse and for a lot of people. And, and I want to add, you created a very popular group online that is now almost like required daily reading for a lot of people who track anti-Semitism at universities. And it, it's like, if it wasn't for the digital shuttle and specific unique places uh, and feel free to plug your Facebook group because um, yeah. people need we need we need these things because we're not getting this anywhere anywhere yeah. else and, and and we also need what you do with the uh, bringing things down and, and Naya as well just people are not going to read the big long books sometimes and it's yeah it's right. not just an academic problem it's an all hands on deck so we really do um we really do need that um and, um, you know, I, I'm not going to let you off the hook with the, the 60 second philosopher. I, I just just real quick explain with regards to uh, uh, can you give us utilitarianism versus consequentialism in 60 seconds regarding the Jewish obligation towards anti-Semitism and tikkun olam? This will be. OK, um, but let me just backtrack a second before I do that. So okay. if anyone is interested, it's not like plugging my Facebook site. It's not, I don't get anything out of it to make that clear. But I'm I do. I, yeah, no. Yes, I moderate um, a Facebook group called Anti-Zionism on Campus. Please feel free, anyone listening who wants to join. Again, for me, the first step in this the thing I, is my role is information, right? And so it's a it's a way to just stay on top of what's going on on campuses with respect to Jews and Israel. And so it's a, it's a nice active group. People have lots to say and discuss. And again, it's information, just like signing up for the Alga Miner. Um, and please feel free to follow me on Twitter too. This is that's what I mostly tweet about is just you know anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism, Twitter, is particularly like on campus, your home base yeah i don't yeah i don't know home base but you know i mm -hmm. if it i actually hate twitter and i wish it didn't exist but you know it's given that it exists evil. it's a necessary evil right yeah exactly um your your question is too big so um I, yeah <laughs> let's not get into like philosophical terminology okay. but there's a question you Fair know enough. you're raising the really deep and good question which is you know um a, how does it come about that people turn against their own people, right? That's That was sort of the starting point of your question. And what are our moral obligations um, to, to our people, right? What are our moral obligations to our people? And these are actually really vexed 
complicated philosophical questions. We're living prior to critical race theory anyway. We're, we're, we're living like in a, where we're going to go with this. Let me say this. The thin Jewish identity goes along with a kind of universalist identity. We're all Americans. Like that was that was an ideal for a while. I think critical race theory is, is challenging that because critical race theory wants to put us all back into our separate boxes, but for a good, good ethnic boxes, but for a good long time, the sort of the liberal idea, Martin Luther King onwards, um, colorblind, et cetera, is we want to diminish the distinctions between us and equality under the law is, the, is at least the idea or the ideal, the aspiration that we're each individuals and let's stop carving ourselves into separate groups that then have competing interests. We're not special interests, we're all general interests. We're all, we're all one, sort of the John Lennon ideal, imagine, right? Imagine there's no countries, there's no borders, there's no religions, all the things that divide people into different clumps, let's get rid of them. There's just one humanity, we're all one, right? That was. Um, the sort of liberal ideal for a good number of, of decades. Um, and American Jews have been very strong proponents of that, often at the forefront of that kind of movement. That's part of the American Jewish contribution to the civil rights movement was driven by these sorts of ideals. American Jews, by and large, are very good liberals in that way and then want to get rid of these distinctions. But then the fascinating thing is, you know, you get rid of all these distinctions, then you have no reason to care more about your fellow Jew than about some non-Jew. Or when you take this to the extreme, and, it, and thinkers do take this to the extreme, you know, if you think about it, why should you care more for your, let's say, your elderly parents than any other elderly people, all of whom have needs, all of whom need support, all of whom are good human beings? Morally speaking, the idea that this is called impartiality. Impartiality is the idea that all people are equally deserving, and therefore you have equal obligations to all people. It sounds nice on paper. There's something nice about that, right? We should care about others. We should care about strangers, et cetera, et cetera. But the cost of that is caring less about your family. And at least for most people, psychologically, you do care more about your parents than about some random senior citizen. You care more about your children than random children, right? And so psychologically, this ideal doesn't fit us very well. Um, but then the question is, but is that, so, so we have to, do, should we fix our psychology? Do we need to sort of retrain human beings? And by the way, when you read like Karl Marx, the communist uh, manifesto, for example, it's not a surprise that one of the ideas there, think about the early kibbutz movement too. The idea there was that children should be raised collectively. You shouldn't think of your, like your children as belonging to you in some special way. You have an obligation to all humanity to produce children, but then the children will be taken away from their families and raised in the kid's house because they belong to everybody. That was actually early tenet of the communist movement as, as part of this idea. Uh, and so that's claiming that that's what the norm should be. And if you like cling to your child and say, no, I want my child to live with me and I want a special relationship with this child as opposed to a random child, well, you need to be re-educated, right? That's, um, so there's a deep philosophical question there. What's the right morality? Should we care, give extra concern to our, let's say our immediate family versus random strangers or not? It's certainly a normal human instinct, but the question is, is it a good or right instinct? Um, and so this this thin American Jewish identity has done goes hand in hand with the idea that we should care about other people at least equally. But because, you know, this is very speculative, because Jews, we want to be good, generally speaking, most of us, 
always exceptions, but collectively we want to be good, you end up bending over backwards. You say, to show how committed I am to everybody, the best way to do that is to deny yourself, deny your own family. Look how good I am. I'm going to take the clothes off my back and give it to someone who needs it, right? Um, and there's something admirable about that in some abstract way, right? You're so other oriented, you're so giving that you'll even negate yourself. But there's also something sick and pathological about the idea. Yeah. The it's idea Jewish of someone self-flagellation. Jewish, but not just but it's I'm flagellating myself in order to benefit others, right? Right. Yeah. Offering myself as a sacrifice so that others can benefit. Um, you mentioned utilitarianism. All right, it's popping out. I couldn't resist, but you know, utilitarianism is this one moral idea goes back to sort of classical liberalism, 19th century as well. But it's the idea that the right action is the one that sort of maximizes the goodness that it produces, maximizes the happiness that it produces. And that sounds great until you start looking at the details. If you were truly a utilitarian, you'd say to yourself, uh, for example, um, oh, you know, right now there's somebody, you know, who's going to die if they don't get a heart transplant. And someone's going to die without a kidney and someone's going to die without a liver. And there are blind people who need eyeballs. And you realize if I literally sacrifice myself and donate all my organs, I can bring happiness and goodness to 10 people. The one who gets the heart, the kidney, the liver, the lungs, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So strictly speaking, if the right thing to do is to maximize the goodness, then you're obligated to kill yourself in order to share, shed your, share your organs. Well, that seems a little extreme when you say, right, that's something's wrong there. <laughs> right. And it, it goes along with the same idea that you should care about everybody equally and not care more about your family first. So if you can come around to the idea that, you know what, it's actually okay if you love your family more than you love other people. <laughs> Uh, and uh, that's, that doesn't mean you can be mean to other people. You can harm other people, right? You still have to be a good person to other people. You should still, you should still work to help people in need, et cetera, et cetera. But it's okay to be partial. That's the word, right? It's okay to privilege, to prefer the people that you relate to are related to more than other people. And of course, once you have that idea, you'll say, well, it's not just my immediate family because I also have my aunts and uncles and my cousins, et cetera. It becomes your extended family. And then it becomes your tribe, right? Mm -hmm. Something like that. And the, the thicker Jewish identity, as opposed to the very thin one that I happen to have grown up with, the thicker Jewish identity is to realize, yeah, you know what? I'm at one individual in the world. My family, my immediate family is particularly important to me, but so is my extended family. And so is my tribe, right? That I can have a, a, a particular allegiance to or solidarity with this subset of humanity. I'm not just part of all, I am part of all humanity. I do care about poor people far, far away, but I, it's okay to care more for people who are closer to you, people who you have a personal right. relationship with, et cetera. That's a thicker Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. And that Jewish identity is typically going to go along with, I'll call it Zionism. That's a strong word, but it, it's a starting point at least where I support the state of Israel. I support the Jewish right for self-determination in our ancestral homeland because I'm part of that project. That's my family, my very extended family. That's perfectly consistent. If you're a rational person, maybe you're very critical of various Israeli policies, fine. Maybe you care a lot about the Palestinians too. That's also fine. But if the starting point is the sense of collective identity, solidarity with my people, the Jewish people, that's the starting, that's the foundation for standing up for Israel, right? It is foundation the foundation for standing up for Israel. Yeah. And too many American Jews have been brought up 
with a thin Jewish identity, with the sort of universalist idea that we have to care for everybody. And by the way, when you say care for everybody, you know, the normal triage process is going to be the oppressed and marginalized need extra care, obviously, because they're oppressed and marginalized. And so you have the phenomenon of Jews who commit themselves to helping the oppressed and marginalized to the point of harming Jews, right? And that's when you're getting to that utilitarianism example. Like, like that's the extreme case of that. I'm so committed to helping the marginalized and oppressed that I'm going to help even those who are committed to destroying the Jewish people. Right. And yeah, to me, that's yeah. the extreme version of the anti-Zionist Jew. And they exist. People like that exist. They definitely exist. And I think we could learn a lot from other race and ethnicities uh, that they don't have that problem. You know, they say black lives matter, not all lives matter. And and right. there's no reason we can't do do both. And I, I like your 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 analogy of thick versus thin Jewish identity. I think right. that's yeah, it's a nicer way of saying it. It used to be such a, a faux pas to really say anything. There's a lot of very negative names that are not so nice. And, and we right. don't want to say those, but we still need to talk about yeah. the phenomenon because there aren't enough people uh, with enough courage to speak out. So um, thanks well, you, for going into all that. Yes. You're definitely showing why you're the genius. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That's assuming what I said was coherent and makes sense. So that, that remains it to be does. seen. But you also mentioned Tikkun Olam, but that's actually a perfect example. So Tikkun Olam, as you're no doubt familiar, um, you know, it's this expression that ultimately it goes back to is it in the Talmud and then maybe the Midrash also, but um, the, the idea of repairing the world. And it's become the slogan of sort of American liberal Judaism. Many of these activists were talking about and they say, my Jewish identity, because this has a Jewish root, this expression, this concept, it has a Jewish source. My Jewish identity is like all in, in that. And so my the way I express my Jewishness is by saving the world and therefore by saving the marginalized and the oppressed and therefore saving the Palestinians, even if that harms Israel, right? That's the thought process. So Tikkun Olam becomes this slogan, but the painful, painful thing about that is if your entire identity is tikkun olam, that really is actually a thin Jewish identity. It's not a thick Jewish identity. Yeah. A wonderful book came out a few years ago. Um, was it Jonathan Neumann, Newman, N-E-U-M-A-N, maybe two N's, um, criticizing, analyzing this expression tikkun olam. It, it doesn't actually mean what these people think that it means and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And nor is it a major Jewish concept in the way that, you know, if you want to say, this is the way that these activists say, I, I am a committed Jew because I'm committed to tikkun olam and that's a Jewish idea. Whereas the thick Jewish identity is has a lot more going on than just that, including a solid sense of solidarity with the Jewish people. So tikkun olam is sort of in the same way that these anti-Zionist Jews are, are weaponized to excuse the anti-Semitism of the anti-Zionist groups. This expression tikkun olam is, is weaponized to defend the Jewish identity of the people who are targeting the Jews. Right? It's weaponized by some non-Jews too. Yeah. Who employ it too. Yeah, We've absolutely. Many times. So, you know, so for people who want to go more deeply into these issues, I think that's a great book. The, the book about tikkun olam, that might've been the name of it too, tikkun olam, came out a few years back as a wonderful place to start because um, it really deflates this Jewish anti-Zionist claim that their anti-Zionism comes from their Judaism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you, 
what do you wish everybody would do right now? What should call, just a call to action? What should the college administrators do? Is it IRA? Uh, you know, and, and also what, what encouragement or advice do you have for people who have gone through this or are going through this? Uh, you know, what, I'm sure just hearing your story is going to help a lot of people. Um, you know, how, what can we plug into action here? Um, so first and foremost, I did mention earlier, be informed. So sign up for the Algaminer newsletter, join anti-Zionism on campus on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. So know what's going on on campuses, first and foremost. Second, be sure to reach out to people on the front lines, whether they're being targeted or whether they're helping doing battles. Certainly support the key groups that are doing work on campus. Um, Stand With Us does a lot of wonderful work. Students Supporting Israel, I think, is, is a fast-growing grassroots movement. I really suggest that you, you check them out because they are trying to produce, uh, nurture college, Jewish, I don't think you have to be Jewish, but college students to be proud Zionists on campus. And they're not afraid to actually be aggressive in a good way on campus. Um, so check out some of those groups as well. Um, IRA, the IRA definition of anti-Semitism is, an, I think, an interesting, complex thing. Personally, I don't think pursuing it is the most important thing, but there are other people, there are people who are behind it. I think what, what we need to do collectively, since we're, we, we, the Jews, first principle to always keep in mind, we are grossly outnumbered in every possible way, right? By every other constituency, certainly by the collective constituencies, we're a tiny minority in the United States, we're actually a tiny minority on most campuses, we're grossly outnumbered. So what we need to do is work together collectively, because when we are divided, which is, as you know, as two Jews get three opinions, so we're, we're often divided amongst ourselves, whatever strength we do have is dissipated. So we need to work together. So to me, it's it's wonderful that there are some groups that are pursuing IRA. They're trying to get campuses, administrations, and student governments to um, affirm the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. I'm sure your listeners are aware that what's important about that definition is that it recognizes that certain expressions of anti-Zionism uh, may well count as anti-Semitic. So that's the importance of that there. So I, I think that that's one tool. For me, it's not the most important tool for reasons we could discuss another time. But being informed, reaching out, and supporting the groups that are active on campus are the sort of the main immediate things that the average person can do. Uh, and then four, you know, the long game is be a proud Jew. And, and that means you know, unlike what I said for my bar mitzvah speech that my Jewish education was complete at the age of 13, recognize it's never complete, right? The people who spend their 12 hours a day in the yeshivas will do it for 80 years, right? It's never complete. Never so complete. be a proud Jew. And that requires learning Ju what Judaism is. It requires being part of a community, a synagogue, a shul, more than just a JCC, but like uh, it involves some connection to really the religious component of the Jewish identity, I believe. And so being a good, proud Jew and standing up tall and proud is, you know, that's the long game that's for everything. us. Yeah, that's yeah. everything. It's, it's, it's being thick, not thin. Yeah, being um, thick, not thin. And, and yes, reading reading Alga Minor and your group are all good. And um, so we did have a, a pre-submitted question, if you have time. Um, Bill F. asks, as Campus Bureau Editor for Alga Minor, 
What do you look for in submissions and what makes for a great op-ed? I'm sure everybody listening wants to know that. Mm, that's a, a question. Yeah, I don't know that I can answer that question because my my I'm not the opinions person at the Algaminer. Oh, okay. So so if anyone does want to reach out to me with a potential op-ed, I'm, I'm happy to um, certainly guide you to the correct per the person who makes the decisions about which op-eds. Algaminer does every day publish, I don't know, four, five, six opinion pieces. Um, and it's a, it's a great exercise. You know, I can tell you that short and to the point is essential for writing. So if your amateur writers tend to write sort of long, disorganized things, you need to have a clear point. And, you know, something like 800 words is a, is a good amount of words. Uh, that's the start of an op-ed. I'm also happy if, you know, someone wants to reach out to me, I can offer individual advice about an op-ed that you might be thinking of, of writing. So, um, but I definitely encourage you to check out the Algaminer and contribute by writing an op-ed. Absolutely, it has, that will get you, it will get you heard. That's great, great. And Jennifer wants to know, what is your next book gonna be about? So um, I mentioned my, my, you know, my dream was to be a novelist. Um, and I've been fortunate to publish three novels. I'm very proud of Nevergreen because that's a novel with a mission as well as I, I think, I'm glad you found it funny. That's the first and foremost, um, hopefully entertaining. And then hopefully also, you know, a, um, a good bit of ammunition in the wars that we're fighting here. Um, so my next book, which I just recently finished, is another novel. Um, uh, you know, and in a way, I mean, this is this is selfish and indulgent, but, um, you know, I, I, have, I, I have a lot of... Um, hostility is the right word, I, negative feelings towards the anti-Israel movement for many, many reasons, uh, including the bigotry and the Jew hatred that fuels it, in my opinion. Um, You're not alone. <laughs> yeah, right. No, right. Uh, it should it should be hated, in my view, just objectively speaking. But I also, I have this sort of personal resentment, which is it's forced me to be an activist about issues where I, I have other things I would have liked to have done with my life, right? I wanted to write novels and I've been fortunate enough to write, write some, but to be honest, I would have written more. And you know what? I, I, I enjoyed my philosophical work. I was writing about Descartes and Cartesianism, as I mentioned, and I had to put all that down to fight this battle. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm proud of it and glad that I did because it needed, to, I've already explained, right? I went through that. It needed to be fought. It, it's given me a sense of mission and purpose, which is all very, very wonderful. But I still would prefer the world where that movement, that bigotry, that Jew hatred didn't exist. And I could do the work that I wanted to do, right? right. So I have this little personal resentment that I have to fight this battle and I do have to fight it. We all have to fight it. You know, and then, you know, think about the people who lived through World War II, you know, or, or any other major, or like, did they want to have to go fight in a world and die in a world war? No, they didn't. So this is, I guess, a, right. a, my case is a small inconvenience compared to the people who've made such unbelievable sacrifices. But um, in any I think case, you're illustrating exactly the type of, of courage we need, because I, I always say the best the best activist is an unintended activist that is conflict adverse like you, but yeah, finally right. just has skin in the game and this, you know, I can't right. stay silent anymore. And, you know, not to decide is to decide. Yeah, no. So hopefully that makes the best activist. But I know many of the people that I now know in sort of the pro-Israel circles, you know, none of them set out to be pro-Israel activists or advocates, but saw the necessity and were willing to make the sacrifice, et cetera. So anyway, my next book is another novel, but I'm now trying to decide what the one after that is going to be because I'm ready for another <laughs> nonfiction. So I'm open to suggestion. So if there's an important book, in the battles that we're fighting that needs to be written, please send me your ideas because I'm ready to turn to that. Oh, I, I'll, I'll come up with something. 
All right. <laughs> so tell, tell us again how people can learn more and support your work. Uh, well, uh, andrewpesson.com, just my name, one word, andrewpesson.com is my website. And there you can find out about certainly all, all most of my work and my speaking engagements. I do talk quite a lot on campus anti-Zionism, campus anti-Semitism issues. Um, but I think the main thing is sign up for the Algaminer because it's such an important news source. And, um, you know, being informed is yeah. the first step towards doing anything. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, well, we have a lightning round real, real quick here for okay. you. So um, these are fun. Uh, I hope. <laughs> fun for you, maybe. Fun for me, at least. <laughs> All right. So why are you proud to be a Jew? Lightning round. Oh, lightning round. Uh, Judaism has the, Judaism has a long, beautiful history tradition. It's to be a Jew is to be part of something so much bigger than yourself that is so beautiful and has so much goodness in it. It's just nothing but a blessing. In addition to being the curse of being the target of hatred for millennia, but that, that's a small thing compared to the beauty and the goodness in this tradition. Mm -hmm. Who are your Jewish role models? Jewish role models. Um, my Jewish role models right now are every student on campus who's standing up uh, and and speaking out and being a proud Jew in the face of really scary, um, a scary onslaught of hostility. I love that. I love that. What makes you the most anxious about the present situation of the Jewish people? Um, what makes me the most, uh, what I am most anxious about is the fact I truly believe that we are approaching the moment of convert, leave, or die, first on campus and shortly behind that in America at large. I really believe that we are heading that, that we are 15th century Spain, that we are 1930s Germany, early 1930s Germany here, and that is just the most terrifying thought in the world. It is. What makes you mad? All of that. And the fact that I couldn't write more novels because I have to be a, a pro-Israel activist. Best to be selfish. For those who look up to you, what do you want them to remember? Uh, AndrewPesson.com, the novel Nevergreen. <laughs> uh, it's inexpensive. It's a fun, fast read. Um, I think the thing to remember is, uh, you know, you mentioned the the inadvertent, the accidental activist which is I didn't set out to do this, but um, when my eyes got open because I was personally attacked, I realized that the, the, the battle has been joined and I, you know, I have to join this battle. And um, I hope that you will join the battle too as you become informed and see what's going on out there. You'll realize we need, we need, we're so grossly outnumbered. We need every one of us. So that's what you should remember is that it's time to join the battle. And the last one, what's your outlook on the future of the Jewish people? And are you hopeful? Uh, so my immediate outlook, short-term outlook is, is very bleak, dark, dark, dark. I don't see a way out of this morass. I do have this faith in this tradition, uh, not necessarily faith in God's providence over us, but just that Judaism has faced catastrophe after catastrophe and Am Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people su survive. So I have every hope and belief that we will survive the, the, this next round too, whatever it is. So that, that's what I'm hopeful. Is that what the question was? What am I hopeful for? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful that we will continue to persevere um, until Mashiach comes. And we want Mashiach now. Mashiach now would be good. Um, well, Professor Andrew Pesson, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story and your wisdom and 
we definitely hope to have you back on again soon, many sure. times, and we wish you the best of luck with your book and all of your other endeavors. Thanks for the work you're doing. Wonderful. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of Talking Point. Tune in next time when we'll have Thane Rosenbaum on to discuss why we need IRA and the case for universalizing the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Until then, bye for now. Thank you for listening to Talking Point on Jewish TV channel, the voice of Jewish communities worldwide. We look forward to seeing you again.